First Corinthians chapter 15. And when you get there, if you would stand and we'll read God's word together. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 28. Paul says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And you can be seated. Okay, well, this little section in 1 Corinthians is really really the strangest in all of the book of first Corinthians, mostly because it mentions one of the most bizarre things in all of the Bible in verse 29, which is baptism for the dead. What does that mean? What's that all about? And to be really honest with you, I'm not sure. And you say, Jason, what did you study all week for? (laughs) I'm not sure. Actually, most people aren't sure what that's talking about. They admit that they don't know. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Let me start by saying that, and this is something that I've said throughout this chapter especially, but what we believe as Christians will always play itself out in our ethics. It will always play itself out in our morality. What you believe will always affect, always affect how you live every single time. And I'm going to give you a little crazy example. I think I've mentioned this before. I can't remember I was talking to a family member like seven or eight years ago, and they claimed to be an atheist. And so we were chatting back and forth a little bit. And so I asked my atheist family member, do you have a dog? And they said, yes, I have a dog. And I said, if you were in a situation where you had your dog drowning and my child drowning, and you could only save one, which one would you save? And they hesitated for a few seconds, and they said, to be real honest with you, probably the dog. And I was blown away. That was their straight up, honest answer. I had actually heard this back and forth in a podcast called Wretched Radio, and I thought I would try it on him, and I never in my wildest dreams actually thought that I would have somebody admit to me that they would rather see a dog saved than a human being saved. But here he was, and he said he would rather save his dog than my child. Um, You can imagine we didn't let him babysit. But what you believe will always, always affect how you live. Always. It's no different with the Bible. If you misunder, if you misunderstand a major doctrine in the Bible, it will affect how you live. 
it will affect your not just your theology, but your ethics. If you have a wrong understanding of marriage, all manner of craziness is unleashed. We've seen that in the last 10 years. We have polygamy. We have polyandry. We have serial divorce and remarriage. We have putting off children and marriage forever. We have gender role confusion. If you have a misunderstanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, Again, all manner of, of nonsense ensues, racism ensues, black supremacy ensues, white supremacy ensues, you get slavery, critical race theories, reparations, wrong views of men and women, all sorts of stuff. Just because they don't understand that they're made in the image of God. When I was younger, I have to be honest with you, that I thought that reading through doctrinal statements and confessional statements were just kind of boring. They're like these old, dusty documents. I mean, what does it really matter anyway? I mean, how does this really affect my life? And you know how it really affects my life? In every single way. In every single way. You know when you're you're building something in construction, you know what the most important part is? It's the foundation. It's what you do with the dirt and what you do with the rebar and what you do with the concrete that matters for the rest of the building. Not, peop- not a lot of people get really excited about dirt and concrete and rebar. But if you mess that up, the whole building is going to collapse. And we see that here. The foundation of the Christian life is doctrine. It's understanding what God has revealed to us in his word. We have to understand that in an accurate way in order to worship him rightly and to represent him to other people and to live out both of those things. Now, the big issue in this whole chapter, as we've seen for about a month or so, is the future resurrection of all people when Jesus returns. Everyone is going to be raised when Jesus comes back. Those who are saved, those who are believers, filled with faith, they will be raised unto glory, into new heavens and new earth. Those who are not believers will be resurrected into the lake of fire forever and ever. And Paul calls out these Corinthians and their messed up view of the resurrection because now it's affecting their view of baptism and what baptism is. The foundation of resurrection has cracked and now it's starting to affect other areas of their life. Resurrection is sort of center in this whole thing, but here he kind of touches on baptism. And so I want to use that as a launching pad for our study this morning. Um, we're going to look at some of the other effects that we see in verses 30 through 34, but we're going to focus mostly on baptism. Um, let me just say, if you mess up the resurrection, as we've seen, a lot can go wrong, including baptism. If you mess up baptism, a lot can go wrong. It's like this domino effect, this chain reaction of, of messed up views when you start tampering with the word of God. There are plenty of errors that surround baptism. Some people wrongly believe that getting baptized actually saves you. We call this baptismal regeneration. We reject baptismal regeneration. Baptism does not save you. There are some people who think that it does. There are people that think that when you get baptized, you will automatically start speaking in tongues. There are a couple examples of that um, or similar to that in, in the book of Acts. Uh, the Mormons think that we should be baptized on behalf of dead people. That seems to be maybe what he's talking about in verse 29 here. Some people think that baptism isn't even a thing anymore. We're in a new age, and we don't even baptize anymore. That's not true. 
Some people have a vague notion that they should be baptized, but they don't really know what baptism is or why they should be baptized. Other people believe that we should baptize infants. We never see an example of that or a command to do that in the Bible. So there's all sorts of confusion that can happen if you mess up the resurrection. There's also all sorts of confusion that can happen if you mess up the doctrine of baptism. And just to be really fair, this verse can be a a way in which people mess up the doctrine of baptism. Here's my goal this morning. Here's here's what I want to do. How do we think through a passage in the Bible that's difficult to understand? How do we think through that? Verse 29 right here. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? That is a strange verse. That is a weird verse. I'm just going to skip ahead to the end of my notes here and tell you there are over 200 documented, cataloged interpretations of what that means. 200. What do we do when we come up to a verse that nobody really has any idea about how to interpret? And so I want to give you some tools for doing that as we study this difficult passage. There's going to be a lot of stuff, a lot of weird stuff in Scripture. I was talking to a guy... He had actually said that he had walked away from Jesus and walked away from the Bible because as he was reading through the Old Testament, he read some places where God had commanded the Israelites to go in and slaughter a group of people. That was just more than he could handle. There's a lot of that in the Old Testament, you guys. If you're not used to that, how do we we deal with those kind of verses? We need to have a game plan for that. So I, I, what I want us to do is, is really understand, when you come across a verse that is so out of left field, you don't know what to do, I want you to have some, some, some tools with which to understand that. The first one is that we approach the passage with humility. We approach the passage with humility. Part of maturing as a believer is coming up to a passage that doesn't make any sense or when you hear somebody talking about a doctrine that maybe you've never heard before and you're trying to understand it and you don't panic. You don't panic. It's in there. You know what? It's been in there for like 2,000 years at least. You are not the first person to discover this passage. You won't be the last person to discover this passage. It won't sink Christianity, I promise you, because Christianity is still going. I remember when I was younger, I, I, I come across verses and I'm like, oh my goodness, is this the one? Did I find the verse that just undoes all of this? No, because it's been in there the whole time. So we have some humility. It's going to be all right. We're going to go on. In fact, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick. Ephesians chapter 4. I think this is a really good understanding of of what my job is as a pastor for you guys and what your guys' job is to one another as we grow in maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lays out why has God gifted the church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds. And he tells us why. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, talking about God, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here it is, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So part of my job as your pastor, part of the job as elders and as teachers and evangelists and so on, is to equip you guys to go do the work of the ministry, to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another. But our goal here is that you might not be tossed around by every little wind of doctrine that blows through. And if you're on social media or if you're in any bookstore or whatever, there's a lot of wind of doctrine that blows around. And you can't be blown around by that. You have to be rooted and grounded in the truth. I grew up in the Tri-Cities. And uh, if you drive around in the Tri-Cities, you'll notice when when people plant trees, they they actually plant them and they've got like these three little wires from the middle of the tree that go into the ground because it's windy there. And what will happen is if you don't have the wires, the, the tree will grow like sideways. And so they put these trees in the ground so that they can grow for a few years until they're strong enough to take those wires off so that they can handle that relentless force of the battering. And that's kind of how we are in the church, right? When we're young in the faith and when we're around people who are young in the faith, we want to be gentle and careful and nurture. But we should be growing up in the faith so that we can take the battering that's going to come. So as you grow in Christ, you need to grow in your understanding of doctrine so that you're not a 40-year-old tree still in need of some wires that are connecting you so you don't get blown around all over the place. You need to grow up in the faith. I've known people who have been in the faith a decade, and they still freak out whenever they come across a verse that sounds like you could lose your salvation. Let me just tip my hand here. There is no verse that says you can lose your salvation. Not possible. There's no verse that says you can. There are warning passages for sure. But there is no verse that says you can lose your salvation. No one will ever go from being a chosen, justified child of God to being an unchosen, unjustified, non-child of God. It just doesn't happen. But people get blown around, and that's not good. The goal of the Christian is to mature and then to turn around and make sure other people are maturing in the faith as well. That's on all of us. To ensure every single one of, of us in the body of Christ here are growing in the faith and maturing in the faith. Listen to Hebrews 5.12. You don't have to turn there. But this is the author of Hebrews. He's talking to the whole congregation and he says this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's talking to the whole congregation. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You can't eat meat, he says. You're still on milk. You you should have grown up by this time. If you've been in the faith a while, you ought to be a teacher. Maybe you don't have the gift of teaching the entire congregation in terms of doctrine or whatever. That's fine. But every single Christian should be maturing and able to teach other Christians. 
Paul says this in Romans 15, 14. He says that he is confident that the church is full of goodness, that they're filled with knowledge, and that they are able to instruct one another. Everyone in the church, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and everyone in the church able to instruct one another, to teach one another. So there's a growth that should be happening. And part of that is when you come across an odd verse, we can humbly know that it's going to be okay. We can approach it with humility. The second thing, and you've heard me say this before, is that we give preference to clarity. We give preference to clarity. We understand confusing verses in light of clear verses. We understand confusing verses in light of clear verses. So we've got this unusual verse about baptism. Sounds like people are getting baptized for dead people. And that is in the middle of a discussion on the future resurrection, which has got its own um, confusion sometimes. Well, one step is just to stop and ask, what do we know about baptism for sure? Before we go to this really weird random verse that we don't know, what, what does the rest of the Bible say really clearly for us to understand so that maybe we can understand this verse in light of all the other verses surrounding it? So, so what we want to do is, is get some guardrails, as it were, for our understanding of theology. So let's do a little theology of baptism. We did a theology of resurrection a few weeks ago, so let's switch it up a bit. Turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. What do we know about baptism here? This is the Great Commission. And I think we can pull a few things out here. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Matthew says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So a few observations about baptism. First of all, the word baptizo actually does mean to immerse, to go down into something, under something. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about immersion. Second, we see that this is a command. This is not optional. We're to go make disciples. How do you know when someone has become a disciple? Well, because they've been baptized. That's how you alert people that you are now a follower of Jesus. What they did to show the church and to God and to the world that they are now a disciple, they are now a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, is to get baptized. That is crossing the Rubicon, as it were, in the Christian life. You get baptized. This is how you show people that you are a Christian. Second, or third, I guess, we baptize using the Trinitarian formula. You baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because all three members of the Trinity are working in harmony together to bring someone to salvation. And so when they are telling people, hey, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I'm on your your team, you are acknowledging all three members of the Trinity have taken a part in that. Your salvation was planned by the Father, it was accomplished by the Son, and it was applied to your account by the Holy Spirit. 
And then fourth, once we're a disciple, we go commanding other people to do that exact same thing. This is self-perpetuating. Notice verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we go make disciples who go make disciples who will go make disciples. We tell Jesus' commands, they tell Jesus' commands, and they tell Jesus' commands. On and on. Everyone in the body of Christ is commanded to go and teach the entirety of the word of God to everyone else. This is discipleship. So if you follow Jesus and haven't been baptized, you should get baptized. That's the command here. You should be immersed in water. And then you should go and you should proclaim the gospel to other people and tell them to get baptized as they follow Jesus. This is the discipleship that Jesus institutes. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's some tricky stuff in 1 Peter 3, but I think there's some helpful things in 1 Peter 3 as we think about baptism. 1 Peter 3, starting down in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey uh, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here we have the gospel, right? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. And then it talks about this kind of a weird thing where Jesus went and he proclaimed victory to the spirits who are in prison. What is that all about? It's probably talking about the, the demons who in Genesis 6 met up with women, tried to create a race, and God drowned the whole world as a result of that. And God cast them all into chains of gloomy darkness is what Second Peter and Jude say. And it seems like Jesus went and he proclaimed victory over them. You didn't win. You didn't corrupt the human race. God drowned everybody except eight persons and started it all over. And here I came fully in the flesh. And then Peter says, baptism is just like that. It's just like God deluging the planet. And you go, why is baptism like that? Because it is a picture of salvation from judgment. Just like the ark saved God's people from judgment, so too Jesus saves people from God's judgment. Actually, Peter says, baptism saves you from God's judgment. Wait a minute, baptism saves us? Peter answers that question right away, doesn't it? Not the washing 
of dirt from the body. It's not baptism that saves us. It's not getting wet. What saves us, Peter says, is actually crying out to God for a good conscience. It's crying out to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? Let me put it this way. In American society, for the last hundred years or so, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, what they're told to do is come walk an aisle or pray a prayer or raise their hand or write on a little card or, or repeat after me or something else to get them to be saved and, and so that the whole congregation will acknowledge that these people are, in fact, believers. But that's not actually the biblical model. That's not the biblical model at all. In the Bible, rather than filling out a card or raising your hand or coming forward or any of that, the way that you show that you're following Jesus is what? You get baptized. You get dunked in water to show that just like Jesus went into the grave, you too have died to your sins. And just like Jesus was raised, you too have been raised into newness of life. And what Peter says is that's actually a type of prayer to God. That when you get baptized, it's actually a type of prayer appealing to God for a good conscience. See, even when we tell people to pray a prayer to be saved, no one would ever say that it is the prayer that saves them. I prayed a prayer to be saved. No. You know what saved me? Faith in Jesus. Faith alone in Jesus alone saved me. Does baptism save someone? No. What saves them? Faith alone and Jesus alone saves them. What shows that they have been saved? Baptism. That's the sign. That's the way we show. I'm with you. Jesus, I'm on your side. Verse 21, he says it's like a prayer. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. When we appeal to God, you know what we're doing? We're praying. Baptism is a type of prayer to God for a good conscience. So the getting dunked doesn't save us. It's what it represents. The salvation from God's judgment through Jesus. And actually, Peter says, you know why you are saved? It's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's something really interesting about this chapter and actually Matthew 28. I don't know if you noticed it at all, but remember the two doctrines that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15? He's talking about resurrection and he's talking about baptism. What do you notice are right here in this part? There's resurrection and there's baptism. Interestingly, there's also a third thing, and that's Christ reigning. Christ having authority over all things. That's in Matthew 28, that's in 1 Peter 3, and it's in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 22. Talking about Jesus, he says, "...who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him." Isn't it interesting that all of those three elements are in all three of those passages? The resurrection, the authority and reign of Jesus, and baptism. What are we doing when we get baptized? We're acknowledging the resurrection of Christ. We're also acknowledging that he's our Lord and that he reigns over all. So part of getting dunked, part of going down under the water and coming up again, is acknowledging all of those realities. 
And this is why I said, if you mess it up on one of those things, you're going to mess it up on a lot of those things. Jesus' death and resurrection is what we're mirroring in baptism. And so when we go into the water, we depict that. When we come out of the water, we depict that too. Now go over, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So we've got Jesus' resurrection, his reign, our future resurrection, and baptism. There are all these elements that we see. So as we come to this verse, we can at least look at it with, with fresh eyes, sort of fresh theology. How do we, how do we understand this verse? What do we know for sure from the other passages we've seen? And the, the, the two passages that we looked at are not the only passages we could have looked at, but hopefully they're helpful enough. Okay, so we stay, help, we stay humble. We look for clarity. Third, we look at the context of our passage. What's going on here? Okay, if, if Mormon missionaries knock on the door and you end up in this discussion, they'll just read this without any discussion of the context. It's helpful just to stop and go, what are we talking about in the verses before and in the verses after? So let's go back up all the way to verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man is come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are in subjection to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God, talking about the Father, may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized on their behalf? So again, the whole context here is about the resurrection. Jesus did die, but Jesus also rose. And because Jesus rose, we will rise as well. And that will happen when Jesus has subjected all things and all people to himself. And notice there's a transition in verse 29. He says, otherwise, if you have the NIV, it says, well, now if, I don't think that's quite as contrastive, but, but the question is now raised, why are people being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead aren't ever going to be raised? And then he goes into a shopping list of all these pointless things that we do as Christians if the dead are not raised. Verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? Well, that's a good question. If there's no resurrection from the dead, why would we ever put ourselves in any kind of risk? Why would we do that? Why would we ever do that for Jesus' sake? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if we die and bump, we're done, then we want this life to be maximized as, as long as possible. And he says in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. 
Paul doesn't mean that he actually dies, of course. He means that he's in constant danger for the gospel. This doesn't make any sense if there's no resurrection from the dead. And just to be really clear with you guys, the gospel message is worth dying for. Jesus is worth dying for. Standing on truth is worth dying for. Because our Lord died for us and rose again, and he promises that we too will rise again. He is worth dying for. But if there's no resurrection, it's not. Live as long as you can. Verse 32 He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The the beasts at Ephesus, it's likely referring to Christians who were thrown to lions as entertainment. That happened in the, the Roman times. Christianity was often illegal in places, and the punishment was to feed them to the beasts, to let the beasts tear them up as entertainment for the pagan crowd's around them. And so he seems to be saying, what's the point of struggling for the name of Jesus? What's the point of enduring persecution if there's no resurrection? And the answer is, there is no point in that at all. Life becomes utterly pointless. And in fact, he says, if there is no resurrection, then our morals and our ethics are useless. He, He quotes Isaiah 22 here. He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 22 where the Lord is calling the people of Israel to repentance. And you know what they do instead? They throw a party. And there's revelry and drunkenness. They do the exact opposite of repenting. Paul says, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, live as long as you can and party as hard as you can because you might as well have some fun in this life because there's no future for us. If there's no resurrection from the dead. And that's why he says in verse 33, kind of changing course a little bit, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Corinthians, your messed up view of resurrection is now affecting your morals. It's affecting your ethics. You're living a drunken, debauched life because you don't believe in a future resurrection. The Corinthians had been deceived into some sort of false theology, and therefore they had false ethical standards. Bad company ruins good morals. That was actually a saying from a a Greek playwright, but it captured the essence of what was going on. You're around sinful people. You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to start doing what they do. They were around people with messed up theology and their lives were a moral train wreck as a result. And just a little side note, I think we know this, but it bears repeating. Who you hang out with in life matters. It matters who you hang out with. A lot of times we have this notion that we can win people to Jesus with kindness and love if we, if we just hang out with them. I mean, Jesus hung out with sinners after all. Well, yes, he did. Jesus was incorruptible. Not able to be corrupted. You know what we are? We are corruptible. We are easily influenced in our lives. So I would say, look, if you can hang out with people who are sinful and you can hang out with pagans and you influence them and they do not influence you, then good on you. Go for it. 
Because we do need to reach out into the world. And we do need to share the gospel with pagans. How else are they going to hear? We can't go out of the world. We have to go into the world. But when the world starts influencing us, then we need to have a little bit of a mental shift. And we need to have a heart reevaluation. I've seen people become corrupted by an awful workplace or an awful school or an awful friend. And they think they are doing eternal good when really what they're doing is they're compromising their whole life. And we have to be very careful who we hang out with. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will, will, will suffer harm. If you... Proverbs 13.20. So be very careful who you spend a lot of time with. Be very careful who is influencing who in your life. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Seems like in the Corinthian church there have been people that were influencing them to corruption. And they had very little knowledge of the true God. Okay, that's the whole context of our situation so that we can now look at verse 29. We're humble. We want clarity. We look at the context. The fourth thing we do when we come to a passage where we don't know is we just, we just consider logically what are the options? What are the options for us? What are the interpretive roads that we could take? Now, to be fair, in most passages where it's difficult, there's usually only like two or three or maybe four legitimate options. There's not like 90. Here, like I said before, there's a guy named K.C. Thompson who lists over 200 different explanations. And you can go look up the theological journal. I've got the reference here if you want it. 200 explanations for this passage. I'll give you four of them just for fun. This is actually from Matthew Henry, who was kind of a Puritan. Number one, the baptism could be figurative in the sense of being baptized spiritually into Christ. So then the argument would be, well, if we're united spiritually to Christ in his death only, but we're not united to Christ in his resurrection, then we're still in our sins. So one way to interpret this is not a physical baptism, but he's talking about spiritually being baptized. That's kind of what Romans 6 gets to. That theologically speaking, we have been spiritually baptized with Christ. We have been spiritually immersed with Christ and spiritually raised with Christ. And baptism is the physical representation of that spiritual reality. So it could be a figurative thing. The second one is that baptism could be literal in the sense of being baptized in water like Jesus commands. But it would be pointless to do if Jesus didn't actually rise because then really what we should do is just go down into the water and stay into the water, right? Because because what baptism depicts is going down into death and coming up out of death. So the, the picture of baptism itself would be corrupted. The third one is kind of interesting. John Calvin held this. Matthew Henry held this. This is what a lot of the commentators um bring up it could be number three referring to martyrs who had died for jesus in the early church when martyrs died they all they often called it a baptism of blood a baptism of blood why because they were immersed into their own pool of blood when they died so he's saying what good would being martyred for jesus matter if you were baptized into your own blood that way they're they're dead right on behalf of the dead if you won't rise with Jesus in the future. 
Number four, and this is kind of where I lean, I, I think the Corinthian church was just crazy, and I think a straightforward reading makes the most sense. I think people were actually just getting baptized on behalf of dead people. There, there may have been one or two. Maybe it was a continual practice in the Corinthian church. We don't know, but just a straightforward reading of it sounds like they were getting baptized on behalf of dead people. And it could have been, and again, this is just all speculation. We just don't know. But it could have been there were people who professed faith in Jesus. We call them confessors in the early church. They confessed faith in Jesus, and they had not had the opportunity or the time yet to be baptized. And maybe the Corinthian church recognized how important baptism is so that, well, you know what? Joe died. He confessed faith in in Jesus, but he didn't get baptism. We know baptism is really important, so I'm going to get baptized on behalf of Joe who's already dead. If you just read the straightforward understanding of it, that sounds like kind of what's happening. They are being baptized, what we would say, vicariously for somebody else. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? It's not a hill that I'm willing to die on, but... But that just seems like what's going on. I mean, you guys, it's the Corinthian church. They're getting drunk at communion. They're denying the resurrection. They're fighting over their favorite leaders. I mean, pick a chapter. They're applauding the guy sleeping with his stepmom. Is it really that far out of the, the, the equation that maybe they're getting baptized vicariously for dead people? No, that's probably one of the more reasonable things they're doing in their error in the Corinthian church. I'm not saying it's right. But if you just put some pieces together, that seems to be what it is. And Paul's point here is, if there's no future resurrection for the people that have already died, why would you go be baptized for them? They're already lost. Look back up at verses 17 and 18. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. They're they're damned. If, if Christ has not been raised. And so I think he's just making the logical connection to baptism. If they're gone, if they're going to go to hell anyway, why would you go get baptized for them? That doesn't make any sense. He's using what's called a reductio ad absurdum argument. He's reducing their argument to an absurdity. If they're never going to rise, if they're in hell now, why would you get baptized? Like, that's not going to do anything. Now, here's what makes this all uncomfortable. He doesn't actually chastise them for baptizing on behalf of the dead people. Like, that's what makes this whole thing weird. I don't know about you, but I'd like a, a, another, like, verse 29b that says, and by the way, don't do that either. But he doesn't do that. He never rebukes them for that. Why not? We don't know. We'd sure like him to. But the most we get is he rebukes them for their denial of the future resurrection, which is really the bigger problem. You'll go to hell if you deny the future resurrection. You don't necessarily go to hell for being baptized on behalf of your Uncle Joe who died, right? We've got, a, we've got an issue of importance here. The future resurrection is, is the weightier matter. Although, let's be honest, getting baptized for someone who has died is pretty weird anyway. Here's what we can say. This is not a command. We don't see a command at all in verse 29 to go do this. 
So when, so when you know, our Mormon friends knock on the door trying to convert us, and they, they talk about this, there's no command here anywhere to do this. We are not under any obligation to do this. We can also say we never see this practice anywhere in the early church fathers. We also never see it anywhere in the Bible that we're called on to do this, or that it's even mentioned to do this. Interestingly, even in this verse, it's not commanded to do. And really, if you think about it tangentially, the whole thing is scrapped because if they don't believe in the resurrection, then they wouldn't do this anyway. So what do we do here? How do we understand this given 200 different options? I think we just say, hey, look, there's no command here to do this. And we don't have much more clarity. We've got clarity on other aspects of baptism, but nowhere else is it mentioned. If it were that important for us as a church to be following or or to be doing, then it seems like it would be a whole lot more clear. So we don't make a whole doctrine of baptizing dead people out of one very obscure verse, and we certainly don't make this a ministry. There are some times when we see a passage that is very specific to a specific context. Remember when Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, hey, drink a little wine for your stomach ailments. We don't go make a ministry about giving people wine for their stomach ailments. There's there's some particular things in the Bible there. We see in, in Philippians chapter 4 where Paul tells Yodia and Syntyche to, to knock it off with their arguing. Well, we don't have a Yodia and a Syntyche. We, we don't have that exact thing. But the Corinthian church would have known what Paul was talking about. God knows what Paul is talking about. We don't know all the details. That's okay. We do have what God does want us to know clearly about being baptized. And with that, we can be sure. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us humility and grace as we seek to understand it. Help us to stand on the truth and help us to be humble when we are unsure of exactly what that truth is. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.